And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 28. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are several of these black Bibles that are scattered uh, under seats uh, throughout the sanctuary. You can feel free to borrow or even keep one uh, if you don't have a Bible. We're in Genesis 28. <clears throat> well, the first time I ever heard of Jacob's ladder uh, was not in the Bible. Uh, but being a child of the 80s, it was uh, in a song by Huey Lewis in the news called Jacob's Ladder. And uh, in the song, Huey sings about a fat man trying to sell him salvation. And in response, Huey sings, well, I'm doing all right, the best that I can, just another fallen angel trying to get through the night, step by step, one by one, higher and higher, rung by rung, climbing Jacob's ladder. Now, I had no idea who Jacob was or why he was in the song and what a ladder had to do with any of this, but I I got the basic point. Uh, The song is an anthem of self-sufficiency. Later in the song, Huey sings, all I want from tomorrow is to get it better than today. So it's really this idea of, of carving out a better life through your own efforts and your own energy, step by step, climbing higher and higher to get to that superior place. Well, that actually describes something of the biblical Jacob, doesn't it? Uh, We've seen from the very beginning, Jacob is a person who is striving and grasping to get what's his. Uh, We we saw this a few weeks ago, even even pre-birth and as he's being born, wrestling and grappling with his twin brother Esau. Jacob was the second born, but in his day it was the firstborn who was the favorite one, the special one, the one to receive the father's inheritance and have first place in the family and receive all the material benefits from the father. And of course in this special family the inheritance also meant being the, the bearer of the great Abrahamic promise, promises of lots of offspring and a land for that offspring and through that offspring would come worldwide blessing. But despite Jacob knowing of God's oracle that he, the younger, would receive the inheritance over Esau, Jacob trusted in his own resources to get things done. Jacob was a very arrogant and very self-sufficient man, uh, just going through life, living life as if he could make things happen, as if he could just climb that ladder and obtain the things that he should have trusted God for. And and he's, he's, he's... doing all of these things to get what he wants at all costs, even if he has to sin to do it. And so we have seen over these past few weeks, Jacob as a greedy, heartless liar and swindler, uh, taking advantage of his dim-witted brother, exploiting his old blind father, basking in the attention of his doting mother, and through his schemes and through his cunning, he has, he has cheated his way into getting Esau's birthright and inheritance. And Esau, being the emotional, impulsive man that he is, is now seething with rage and is desperate for revenge, and he is plotting to murder Jacob. And so now, at the urging of his mother, Rebekah, Jacob has to flee to Haran, to his uncle Laban, to find refuge and safety. And, and the irony is, is that this man who had fought and wrestled and schemed his whole life trying to climb the ladder to get what he thought he should have to obtain security and meaning and significance, after all, all that he has tried to do, now he has absolutely nothing to show for it. 
He's a fugitive. He's a fugitive on the run. If he has been climbing a ladder, well, now he's fallen off, and he's lying flat on his back. That's where we left Jacob last week, in exile, at his lowest and most helpless point. And it is in that moment that God is going to show up and confront this sinful wretch, this wicked scoundrel. And he surprises Jacob, he surprises Jacob with his grace. Let's see what happens next. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of God. This is in Genesis chapter 28, and we will start at verse 10 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his dream, his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. and This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what what an amazing word this is that you've given us this morning, and I pray that you would help this weak and flawed preacher to preach it rightly, to divide the word of truth correctly, that I might be a vessel of the Holy Spirit to speak your message to your people this morning. Bless this time in your word, Father. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there's a few things uh, in this text that we see this morning, and the, the first thing that we see is a sad picture, a sad picture, Jacob's lowly condition. Scholar Bruce Walke notes that sunset is a common image in Scripture, a common image of distress. 
And as Jacob walks the rocky countryside on his own, as the sun sets, surely Jacob is in a distressed condition mentally and emotionally. Nothing is working out according to his designs. He finds himself homeless and penniless and friendless. He's homeless in that he has been sent away from the only home that he's ever known. Uh, The land that he's supposed to inherit, he is now being exiled from. He's going roughly 500 miles away. In fact, let's go ahead and put up a map here of uh, of Jacob's journey, Jacob's route to Haran. Again, that's that's almost 500 miles. That's a long way to go on foot. Uh, That's a long way for anyone, but especially for Jacob. Jacob, the homebody. Remember what we've learned about Jacob thus far. Jacob, the domestic type. Jacob, the opposite of his brother Esau, who, remember, Esau loved the out of doors, and he lived by his sword, and he could handle himself in the wild. Esau would love a trip like this, and just so, you know, living off the land and, and taking care of himself uh, along the way. But, but here is Jacob now, and he is running from the comforts and the securities of his family's tents into a rough and rugged country full of wild beasts and dangerous people. But not only is he homeless, but he's penniless. He leaves with nothing. All he's got is his walking staff. And a little later, a rock for a pillow. Worse, he's friendless. We know that he's had a strained relationship with his father. I'm sure what he did back in chapter 27 didn't help. He's got a brother who wants to kill him. And the only friend really that he's ever had uh, is his mother, Rebecca. She has sent him away. This is her idea and he will never see her again. But perhaps even worse, he knows that everything he is now experiencing, he has brought on himself. Jacob is at his lowest point in his life thus far. And as he lay there, looking up at the starry sky, it's not hard to imagine him just thinking how awful his predicament is. But one thing I think is fairly certain, he's not drifting off to sleep saying, as I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Because Jacob has demonstrated zero interest in God. Ian Dugid rightly says that Jacob wasn't looking for God, and and he had done nothing in his life to earn God's favor. Quite the reverse, he is a liar and a cheat. And so in that respect, Jacob's like every one of us. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait for you to go looking for him? You do understand, don't you, that God always is the one who takes the initiative in the relationship. Because the Bible says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, not just Jacob, each of us has turned to his own way. That is the sad and sorry condition of every person apart from the grace of God. Indeed, Romans chapter 3 gives us the plain hard truth when we're told that no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. So if that's true, then if we're to be in a relationship with God, he's going to have to seek us. And this is what's about to happen to Jacob, where unsought for, uh, unbidden, God comes to him and gives a shocking vision, a shocking vision, namely that heaven and earth are connected. As Jacob lay there at his little campsite, all he can perceive is the, is the hard earth underneath, underneath his body, 
and the sound of wild beasts in the distance, maybe the dark outlines of, of hills in the background. It's a lonely and, and insignificant place. But in the dream, his eyes are open to an absolutely stunning reality. Verse 12 says, he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And he sees angels uh, moving up and down, back and forth between the two realms, between heaven and earth. Because, and this would have been mind-blowing for Jacob, because heaven and earth are connected. They're part of the same reality. And this would have been absolutely shocking for Jacob because he had lived his entire life on the plane of this world. Just, just basing everything on, on what he can see and perceive with his five senses. Heaven was not on his mind, I guarantee you. And the things of God were not influential in his choices. For him, there was a total disconnect between heaven and earth, between the physical and the spiritual. He may have believed in God, but it had no impact whatsoever on his life. For Jacob, if there was a God, he was remote and distant and not relevant to real life here on earth. I mean, why else would Jacob stoop to lying and stealing and cheating to get the blessing? Because he doesn't believe in divine intervention. Jacob is, is the first deist in the Bible. If you heard of the philosophy of deism, you know what a deist is? Uh, it's someone who believes in God, but, but it has zero relevance uh, to, for his day-to-day life. And by the way, that is the dominant religion in our country today. In America, most folks are happy to maybe acknowledge God, uh, say that God exists, are happy to give God an occasional shout-out. But practically speaking, he's irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant. And sometimes, sometimes, y'all, even Christians can act like deists, where we make decisions and we make choices without any reference to God whatsoever. We don't pray, we don't open our Bibles, we trust our own wisdom and our own resources. We come to church and we give, we give props to God on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, we are practical atheists. We live, we work, we conduct our marriages, our parenting, our careers, our hobbies. Uh, we process the tough decisions we have to make. We deal with our desires and fears and anxieties. We deal with all these things detached from the heavenly realm. You ever heard the phrase, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good? Heard that phrase before? I'll be honest with you. I have never met anyone like that. Never. Uh, With most Christians, the problem is actually the opposite, right? We're not heavenly-minded at all. Uh, We're so earthly-minded that we are little heavenly good for ourselves or for anyone else. That's, That's the kind of person Jacob was. And if we, if we live a Jacob-like life, we will, like Jacob, find ourselves doing all kinds of things that we ought not be doing. We may lie and cheat to get ahead, or we may compromise ourselves morally in other ways. We may be able to, uh, we may be unable to forgive someone who has hurt us. We may descend into fear and anxiety about the future. 
As we wonder how we're going to meet our financial needs, we may, we may end up uh, uh, pursuing and marrying someone whom we totally should not marry. Uh, we may spend our lives in, in pursuits that are less than worthwhile and risk wasting our lives because when we begin to believe that the things of heaven have no practical relevance to our lives on earth, then guess what? Our lives follow suit. We actually live that way. And we construct our lives uh, simply on the basis of what we see and, and what seems right according to our opinions, following, the, following after the impulses of our hearts that are untethered to God and His Word and His wisdom and the reality that He's revealed to us in the Bible. But now, Jacob, in the world of the dream, perceives a reality that he was totally clueless about in the waking world. And that is that heaven and earth are connected. They're equally real, they're equally relevant, and they impact one another. For his entire life, Jacob has ignored one half of reality, so no wonder his life is out of whack. I'm reminded of Jesus' illustration where he says that anyone who listens to his word who takes into account heavenly realities, building his life uh, in accordance with his truth, is like a man who builds a house on the rock, and when the storm comes, the house stands firm. But, on the contrary, uh, anyone who does not listen to his word, who disregards heavenly realities, and simply builds his life on the basis of his own wisdom and his own strength and his perception of reality, is like building a house on a sandy foundation so that when the storms of life come, the house utterly collapses. And Jacob's life is in shambles for precisely that reason. And God here is graciously showing Jacob that there is this whole other realm that he's been ignoring his entire life. And though Jacob sleeps, God is opening his eyes to the very thing that he needs to build his life on, which is the one whom verse 13 says is standing above the ladder. Ladder, by the way, isn't the most helpful translation I don't know about you, when I think of ladder, I think of like, you know, the kind of ladder you climb up the side of your house to clean the gutters or a fireman's ladder, and, and, and then you think about the scene of angels going up and down a ladder. That can get kind of awkward. Ladder's not the best translation. Staircase is better. You might have a translation that says staircase. Uh, but many scholars agree that what Jacob saw was actually something like a ziggurat, a ziggurat is it's a multi-storied temple tower in the shape of a pyramid with, with a staircase or staircases going all the way up to the top. And in the pagan religions, the ziggurat was meant to be the connection point between heaven and earth. And at the very top of the tower, one could make a connection with the gods. In fact, we've already come across one prominent ziggurat in the book of Genesis. Do you remember what that is? Genesis 11, Babel, Tower of Babel, and, and the builders of Babel wanted to build this tower as high as they could, the world's first skyscraper, and they, and they sought to find significance and safety and security there. And so Babel represents man's arrogant attempts to achieve greatness by climbing his way up and earning the blessing and favor of heaven. Uh, the word Babel actually means gate of God. But for all their pretense of religion, religion was merely a means to an end. Uh, for them, the end was not God. 
Uh, for the Babylonians, uh, the, the end was to, to find meaning and purpose and security and satisfaction and greatness apart from him and his plan. And so for all their outward religiosity, they're actually just like Jacob. And, and, and they're like King Solomon. King Solomon, who like Jacob and like the people of Babel, spent much of his life step by step, rung by rung, trying to climb that ladder, trying to achieve for himself significance and and purpose and happiness through his own resources in his own way. Indeed, he was way more persistent than the people at Babel. He tried it all. Uh, he, He writes in Ecclesiastes chapter one, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom in my heart, surpassing all. I perceive that this is but a striving after the wind. He went after trying to be really wise. And then in chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. But behold, this was also vanity. Chapter 5, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This also is vanity. Chapter 6, he says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Solomon's experience represents all who seek to climb a ladder to achieve some sort of blessing in their own way, in their own strength, and yet it's all in vain. They can never reach the top and experience the pinnacle of blessing. We all know something of this sinful impulse, don't we? We want our lives to be meaningful and blessed and and satisfied, and so we think, well, well, if I could just have the perfect family, if I could just achieve that end, marry the perfect person, if I have the right job, if I can make enough money, if I can have enough people that like me and respect me, then I will feel safe and secure and have everything I need. And like Solomon and Jacob, we have tried to to grasp for a kind of salvation and a kind of blessing apart from God. And it reminds me of the penetrating question that God asked in Isaiah 55, where he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. All of our self-sufficient efforts in the end proved to be vain and proved to be futile, just like the tower builders at Babel who end up failing and frustrated and scattered. And so in light of that, it's not, it's, it's, is it not interesting? Is it not interesting that in God's very first revelation to Jacob, he chooses to show Jacob a ziggurat of all things? What's more, verse 12 says that he saw the ladder was set up on the earth. Uh, The Hebrew there literally says, placed towards the earth. In other words, while in Genesis 11, the rebels at Babel were trying to build a tower from earth up to heaven, here the stairway is represented as stretching down from heaven to earth. It's, It's actually the reverse of Babel. Uh, so, so at Babel, the origins, the foundation is, is on earth going up, and what Jacob sees is something where its origins are in heaven coming down. Why? Because blessing cannot ultimately be found in us striving and climbing, uh, climbing up and up and up to try to grasp what we think we need. Instead, blessing must come down from heaven to us from God as a gift, And the safety and security and the meaning that we long for are ultimately bound up in him. And we receive these things from his hand, not by our efforts, but by his grace through faith. In addition to shock, 
Jacob must have felt great fear as well. In fact, the text says he was afraid when he woke up. How much more afraid he must have been in the middle of the dream. We routinely see in the Bible man's response to God and his glory to be great fear. Great fear. Because God is holy and we're not. And we know that we deserve God's judgment. You think about Isaiah chapter 6. You think about Isaiah who was a much more moral and decent fellow than Jacob for sure. And in Isaiah 6, Isaiah encounters God in his majestic holiness, and, and, and when he sees God, Isaiah declares that he is utterly undone. And so you can imagine someone now like Jacob, a thoroughly ungodly, unholy man, a blasphemer, a liar, a cheat, cared nothing for the things of God, only cared about himself. As he laid his head down on that rock that night, he was not fearing God, he was fearing Esau, But now this dream shows whom he should really fear. And it is is the one whom verse 13 says is standing above the staircase. Heaven and earth are connected, and God has been watching him the whole time. And now, God's about to open his mouth. God's about to, to speak, which also can be a very terrifying thing. Because elsewhere in the Bible, we see the very word from God's mouth destroying sinners in judgment. And if anyone deserves to be destroyed and obliterated right now, it's Jacob. And so God opens his mouth, but what comes forth forth is not a word of judgment, but a word of blessing. Which leads to my next point in this text where we see stunning promises, stunning promises, namely that God is for and with his people. God speaks and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. God introduces himself here to Jacob, not as God, the judge, jury, and executioner, but as the covenant God who entered into a relationship with Jacob's grandfather and Jacob's father. And the implication here is that Jacob now is next in line. So again, we're seeing God is taking the initiative and establishing the relationship. And Jacob now is the one through whom Uh, God will work out his covenant promises. And and God then reiterates the Abrahamic blessing. Verse 13, he says, the land you're lying on, I'll give it to you. Verse 14, you'll have numerous offspring spreading out to the west and north and east and south. And 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 that in his offspring, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and, so all, and all of these blessings are coming not because of Jacob's scheming and grasping, and they're not coming because of Isaac's wishes and Isaac's power to make reality come true. Instead, these things are coming from the hand of God by His grace. But it gets even better. Verse 15, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So here is the very best assurance and very best promise that Jacob could ever receive, the assurance of God's presence. He says, I'm with you, Jacob. In other words, God is is not just way up there at the top of the ladder, far off and watching from a distance. That would be the God of deism. God is actually right by Jacob's side. In fact, an alternate rendering of verse 13 Go back up to verse 13, an alternate rendering of verse 13 from the Hebrew into the English is that the Lord stood, not above the ladder, 
but that the Lord stood beside Jacob. If you have a CSB, a Christian Standard Bible, that's, that's how it's rendered. That's how it's rendered in the, in the Tanakh, the, the, um, the, the, the Jewish uh, translation into English of, 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 um, of the Scriptures. The Lord stood beside Jacob. And context really may lean in favor of that rendering because when Jacob wakes up in astonishment, he doesn't say, surely the Lord is up there somewhere, but surely the Lord is here in this place with me, right beside me. God condescended himself to come down the staircase and be with Jacob. And he's come down from heaven not to judge Jacob for his sin, but to be his advocate and his defender and his protector. That's what God means when he says, I will keep you. In Jacob's lowest point, in his time of great loneliness, reeling from the consequences of his own sin, with the threat of Esau behind him and an unknown future in front of him, this is the message that Jacob needed to hear more than anything else, that God is with him and will be by his side and will be faithful to him no matter what. The Bible constantly gives God's people the assurance of God's presence. And, and God's presence is ultimately the solution to every fear that we have. You know, when God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, Moses responds with massive insecurities and excuse-making and fear. And God simply responds by saying, but I will be with you. Almost as if Moses is largely irrelevant that Moses' strengths and abilities and awesomeness is ir- or lack thereof is irrelevant. That's the point, it is. The difference maker is the presence of God. God says to his people in Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. When, when God calls Jeremiah into prophetic ministry, a ministry where he's gonna face opposition, God says, do not be afraid, for I am with you, declares the Lord. King David, who is no stranger to affliction and danger and trial, says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because David is awesome? No, for you are with me. And Jesus, in giving us the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, I wonder, what are you afraid of this morning? Perhaps you're in a trial, a difficult circumstance. Maybe there's a situation on the job that's causing you to be afraid. Or maybe there's some difficult people in your life making life really tough for you right now. Maybe you've received a difficult medical diagnosis. Maybe financially it feels like things are collapsing around you. Those are real, painful, difficult situations for sure. But what difference would it make? What difference would it make in your life if you knew right now that God was actually with you in the middle of these things that you are afraid of? Not distant and aloof up there, but present by your side right here. And not just that he is with you, but that he is for you. That 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 is the big difference maker. I mean, somebody could be with you and not do a single thing for you. They, they could be with you and be a hindrance. But for God, God is not just with you, he is for you. That was God's message to Jacob and is his message for all of his people through the ages right now to you right now. And you may say, well, I am such a sinner and I've messed up so many times. Surely God is through with me. Have you ever felt that before? Guys, I've been a Christian for a long time and, and 
you know, know my Bible okay, I guess, and you know, know the promises of God, but, but nevertheless, there are times where I just, I feel tempted to think I, I've just messed up one too many times, and God will, 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 will push me off over here somewhere. I think probably many of us feel that way sometimes, that God is through with us. Friends, Jacob was a sinner, and yet God was committed to him. God was in a covenant relationship with him, and he will never forsake that relationship. That, that's the point of God's promises here. And if you are in Christ, guess what? You are in a covenant relationship with God. And he will never forsake you, even in the wake of your sin. And some of you need to hear that right now. Some of you need that word of assurance this morning because of something you did this morning or this week. And so believe that assurance. Embrace it, receive it, exult in it, and hear the heart of God in Isaiah 43, where God gives a word of assurance and comfort to his people, a people who, like Jacob, were in exile from the land as a consequence of their rebellion. And God does not say, well, I'm through with you people. Instead, he says, he who created you, O Jacob, hmm, that's interesting, he uses the word Jacob there. Of course, we know Jacob's name is eventually changed to Israel. From him comes the nation of Israel. God says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. God never promises his people that they won't experience trials and difficulty, sometimes even due to their own sin. He never, he never promises that we won't pass through waters and rivers and fire. And some of you are like, I know, because I'm in it right now. Instead, though, what God promises, instead it, it is our hope in the sure promise of his presence that sustains us through those things. In other words, he doesn't promise those things won't happen, but he does promise something better, that he'll be with you in the midst of it. His his presence is what keeps his people from being ultimately consumed and overwhelmed. And because God's presence remained with them, and the the people who God's talking to in Isaiah, those exiles, they were uh, preserved until a way opened up for them to return home. It's exactly what he promises, by the way, for Jacob in Genesis 28, a, a homecoming. He says, he says, you won't be exiled forever, and I will bring you back to this land because I'm faithful to you even though you're not faithful to me. And, and by the way, that's the promise for New Testament believers whom the Bible describes as being in exile. This is not our true home. This is not our final destination. And in the meantime, we face all kinds of trials and afflictions and difficulties and sorrow in this life, but God is with us every step of the way. And because he is, that's why we can say with confidence with the Apostle Paul that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, I mean, think about it. What what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this who comes to to a man like Jacob and does not give him what he deserves? If he gave Jacob what he deserves, he would not say, I am with you. He would say, I'm against you. But instead, he says, I'm with you. I'm for you. Even more, Jacob, you need to stop striving and grasping and grabbing. I will do these things, not you. 
Kent Hughes writes that this is all grace. Jacob, the conniving outcast, alone due to his own sin, who merited nothing from God, was met by God in his misery with an unparalleled revelation of God's care and assurance for the future. Jacob was not seeking God. He was not expecting grace, but grace was unleashed upon his soul. that's, That's our God. That's just the kind of God that he is. You should celebrate that this morning. You should thank God for that this morning. The God who dealt with Jacob, he deals with you. And he deals with you with the same kind of grace and patience and commitment. Well, the next thing we see in our passage is a surprising response, a surprising response. The hard-hearted sinner is touched. So Jacob wakes up and he does something that he has never done before. He worships God. Verse 18, he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. So he marks out this place in this moment as a special turning point in his life. It's noteworthy that the very first thing Jacob says isn't about all the things that God has promised to give him. He doesn't wake up and say, cool, I'm going to get all these blessings. Instead, with holy fear and awe, he marvels at the person through whom the blessings come. He says, how awesome is this place? Uh, For the first time ever, Jacob is in awe and enamored with something other than himself. And the reason the place fills him with awe is not because of the place. That's insignificant. The reason he's in awe of the place is because of God. God is the difference maker. He's met God here. He names it Bethel, which means house of God. Uh, God's, God's presence makes the very insignificant place massively important. And so Jacob begins to learn a very important lesson, that the apex of the blessing is God himself. The apex of the blessing, the pinnacle, is God himself. And then in verse 20, he makes a vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, let's admit that this vow is not perfect. It may sound a bit crass to you. If God will do this, then I'll do that. Some see a bit of the old bargaining Jacob coming through in that vow. One commentator says that Jacob here is more scoundrel than saint. Well, I don't doubt that. But who is ever everything they should be when they first come to know the Lord? Uh, How are you as a new believer compared to how you are now? Did, Did all of your sinful habits and ways immediately melt away? Let's remember that when God saves any of us, it's just the very beginning of a lifelong renovation project as he works on our hearts bit by bit removing all the old junk and and replacing it with things that are new. Jacob still has a long way to go, as you do. But this is an encouraging start. In fact, uh, the, the if there could be actually read as since. In other words, Jacob's not doubting God or bargaining as much as he's saying, since God will do these things for me, as he just said, then he will be my God. I mean, that's essentially what you, you did when you became a Christian, <laughs> When you discover the promises of the gospel, well, well, well and that, if, this is, if this is what he says, and if this is what he will be for me, then absolutely, sign me up. This is a, a vow of dedication and commitment in light of God's amazing grace that's been given to him. 
which is what our response should be to God's kindness to us. This is a wonderful step in the right direction. And another good sign is is at the end of verse 22, we see his commitment to give back to the Lord a tenth of all that God gives him. Now, this is really important because this takes place before the Mosaic law. There was no obligation put on God's people that they should tithe. Jacob makes the choice here freely. And so here, Jacob, the grabber, becomes Jacob, the giver. A greedy Jacob now freely and cheerfully seeks to worship the Lord with whatever, el- whatever wealth God may bless him with in the future. <laughs> right now, God has, uh, Jacob has nothing. But, but, he, but he's hopeful he's going to get something. And, and when he does get something, he wants to honor the Lord with that. You know, I, I dare say that Jacob's commitment and his step is a bigger step of faith and devotion than some of, the, some of Jacob's modern-day criticizers I've ever taken. A good test to see where our hearts are at is to look at our checkbook registers and see how we are stewarding God's resources. And so what we see at the very least is the beginnings of a softening of the heart of a man who for decades has ignored and disbelieved God with his life. At Bethel, Jacob learns an important lesson that the people of Babel missed, namely that the chief blessing is not found in climbing the ladder upwards grasping and trying to make all our dreams and plans come true. Instead, the chief blessing is found in the God who comes down to us, receiving everything he has for us in his way, in his time, by his grace through faith. Jacob saw much on that amazing, fearful, beautiful night. And if you're envious of that, if you're thinking, man, I wish God would give me a revelation like that. Well, I'm here to tell you he hasn't done that but that he's given you a better revelation. Which leads to my final thought, which is a spectacular revelation, a spectacular revelation. Jacob saw in part what we see in full. In John chapter one, when Nathanael hears about Jesus, he is sincere, but he's skeptical. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And when he meets Jesus, Jesus says to him, says to him something very interesting. He says, behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's interesting. What Israelite is known for their deceit? Jacob, the very first Israelite, right? And again, of course, Jacob's name is later changed by God to Israel. All Israelites are sons of Israel, sons of Jacob, uh, the swindler and the deceiver. And so when Jesus says to Nathanael, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, he's essentially saying, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Uh, Jesus is, is, is suddenly leading the conversation to the story of Jacob. Nathanael, you're already off to a better start than your forefather. And Nathanael is perplexed. Uh, it seems like Jesus is staring right through him into his heart, and he says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael is amazed by this and immediately declares Jesus to be the Son of God, the King of Israel, which seems over the top, unless, unless there's something more going on than just Jesus walking down the road, and he looks over there and he just sees some guy sitting under, under a tree. And I, and I think there is. I think there is something more going on here than just that. 
There's something about Jesus' statement that Nathaniel interprets as Jesus seeing or perceiving something about him that if Jesus were just an ordinary man, he should not know. He says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel. It was not uncommon for devout Israelites to sit under a fig tree for prayer and, and for meditation on the Word of God. And Nathaniel may have been doing just that. And being a true Israelite with no deceit, perhaps he was meditating on Old Testament promises about the coming Messiah. Or perhaps, and I could be wrong about this, but, but perhaps I have a sneaking suspicion that, that, that maybe one of the scriptures that was on Nathaniel's mind was Genesis 28. And I think that because of what Jesus has already said and because where he's taking the conversation. Nathaniel stands amazed He declares Jesus to be the Messiah, and then Jesus says this in John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, that revelation that our father Jacob received, you're going to see greater things than that. If, if you're amazed that God came down to be with Jacob, get ready for the shock of your life because God has come down again, not on a stairway, but by means of taking on human flesh. And ultimately, what Jacob saw on that incredible night thousands of years prior was pointing forward to the incarnation. And Nathanael was experiencing a superior revelation than Jacob in that moment as he, he's staring into the eyes of this God who came from Nazareth. And indeed, all of us have received that superior revelation, not through a dream, not through a shadow, but through the substance that that shadow points to. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, our fathers like Jacob. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He says, you'll see angels ascending and descending on, not a ladder, on the Son of Man. He takes takes the ladder imagery and he replaces it with himself. In Christ, the essence of what Jacob saw and the promises God made to him All all of those things that Jacob saw are bound up in Christ. Promises of God's presence, promises of God's protection, promises of God's provision, promises of God's blessing. All the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so we discover that Jesus is the ladder, the stairway. Jesus is the true Bethel, the, the house of God. He's the true gate of heaven. Uh, The great temple towers, the, the ziggurats, as tall, as impressive as they were, drastically failed to come even close to reaching God. Man cannot ascend to God through his efforts, through his strength, through his deeds, through his good works. It's all futile. It's all in vain. It's all chasing after the wind. Our sin has created the, the chasm between us and God. We're no different than the people of Babel. No different than Jacob. We have lied and cheated and have been proud and arrogant. And in response, God has judged man and has exiled us from the enjoyment of his blessing, of his presence. And without intervention, that exile will lead to permanent banishment in hell forever. But God had mercy on our pitiful, sad condition. 
He knew we would not and could not ascend to him. And so by grace, he descended to us in the person of Christ. Like Jacob, we in our sin did not seek after him, but Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. In this is love, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Jonathan Edwards wrote that by his death, Christ has removed the great thing that separated heaven and earth, which is the guilt of sin. Christ, by his death, has removed the separation, for he has made complete atonement for sin, and now the gate of heaven is open and the way is clear. Jesus died for sin so that every sinner that turns from sin and trusts not in himself, not in his own strength and resources and efforts, but whoever receives God's gift of salvation by grace, through faith, trusting in Jesus' work, will be forgiven, will be saved, and will find that the chasm between man and God has been bridged. Jesus is the connection point between heaven and earth. Jesus is, it is through Jesus that we receive access to heaven. He is the gate of God. And having paid the price, Jesus rose again and promises to be with his people always, even to the end of the age. And, and he promises that one day he will bring us fully and finally to himself as we will dwell with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth where the, where the fullness of God's promise in Genesis 28, 14 will be experienced. Uh, where we who believe Jacob's offspring will be like the dust of the earth spreading abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, inheriting a kingdom free from suffering and sorrow and death, experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, which is the enjoyment of his presence forever. If you came here this morning unbelieving, separated from God due to your sin and your rebellion, this moment and in this place, this could be your Bethel, where, where you can receive and trust in the grace of God who has come down to reach sinners just like you. If you're already a believer, the call for you this morning is to continue to believe, to continue to trust, and to hope in the God who will never leave or forsake you. He is with you and will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are the great covenant God. Not only do you make promises, but you keep them. And you will keep every single promise to your people. Promises to protect, promises to preserve, promises to provide for, promises to, to strengthen, promises of help promises of, of power during the times of trial and affliction, promises that you will sustain us and bear us up every single day, and promises that what we experience now in this life is not the end of the story. Thank God for that. But out on the other side, there's something even better, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and you will bring these exiles, these Jacobs, home. Thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.